two really exciting things are happening today. Uh, one, you will probably not understand unless you've preached or pastored or taught. I've been doing that on a fairly regular basis since I was 16. And that is, I had this really cool new attachment on my microphone today. See, you don't get it, do you? And it's making it not move. How many times, y'all see me doing this all the time? Oh, I feel so, I'm so excited. Thank you, Matt and Mark. <laughs> I may still do it today, but it will be completely out of habit because it is not moving today. Uh, that will allow me to preach much longer. Um, <laughs> the second thing is, um, we are completing First Timothy today. Some of you thought that might never happen. And so it only took six months. <laughs> so, but I'm excited about finishing this great book and and uh, picking up 1 Corinthians. And if you thought we spent a long time in Timothy, you haven't seen 1 Corinthians yet. <laughs> so, um, but I'm excited about completing this book. It's been a great journey for us. Paul's letter to his young protege, Timothy, pastoring uh, in Ephesus. Um, and so I'm excited uh, to be finishing this uh, because I think it's been rich for our church. Um, and so let's finish it. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 17 through 21. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 through 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. I uh, love the Bible. I love reading the Bible, and I love learning more about the Bible. And this is what I affectionately call a Columbo moment for Paul. Now, those of you who are probably under the age of 40 may not get the Columbo <laughs> moment, but I grew up uh, with my mother watching um, lots of police shows, and um, one of those was Columbo. And if you remember Columbo doing his investigations, he would finish and he would turn around to walk away, and then he would say, oh, one more thing. <laughs> and I can't help but see that as Paul's moment here. Now, the Bible is inspired, but God uses human authors. And so there's personalities that we see in the writings of those who were inspired to write scripture. And you can't help but after reading verse 16, after Paul describes our God and then finishes it with amen, that that would not have been a great place to end the letter to Timothy. But it's almost like, and there are arguments about how this might have been done, Paul more than likely used a scribe, so he would, he would speak and somebody would write this down and then he would uh, usually, Paul would uh, finish the last few sentences, we think, in his own hands. Um, but nevertheless, it seems like he finished this and then went, oh, one more thing. 
after spending a tremendous amount of time in chapter 6, speaking on the subject of money and reminding Timothy to not pursue that as the center of his life and to make sure that he tells his church, don't love money. Don't pursue that. Don't go after that because those who love money, those who make that the the point of their life, they will pierce themselves with many pangs. And so listen, don't love money. Watch out for the money. And it's almost as if Paul thought by the power of the Holy Spirit, what about those in the church in Ephesus who are already rich? Huh. So one more thing, Timothy. (laughs) And he tells them, to be careful about how they handle their already existing wealth. After verse 9 warns extensively about those who would struggle with the temptation of money and what it might bring upon their lives, and he tells them, be careful of the evil desire of money. Then verse 17, Paul reminds those who already have it, To make sure they don't put their faith in it. And that's important for us. So because we have had this theme in Timothy that the Bible was written for you but not to you. So this letter written to Timothy. uh, And yet we are able as believers to learn from it. I'm going to ask that if you're rich to please stand up. No, I'm just kidding. Don't. (laughs) Not what I'm going to do. You could definitely take two angles here as a pastor. You could look at this text and say, yes, uh, he is speaking to the rich in Ephesus, meaning uh, that when this letter would have been read, if it would have been read, and I think it would have been, I think we'll find that at the very end of here, uh, but if he had read it publicly, everyone in the room would have known who they were talking about, right? I mean, they would have known he's talking, but he ain't talking about me, <laughs> And you could definitely think that way, that there will always be among us those who are wealthy, those who are wealthier than us, for sure. And you could also take the angle that based on the economy that we have, um, most people in Ephesus would call us today wealthy. And so you could definitely take that angle as well. But knowing the original intent of the author, he was speaking to those who were wealthy. And so we'll, we'll look at both angles. One, um, that there are those, uh, without a doubt, that exist in churches uh, that are wealthy. They have a tremendous amount of money. It's interesting when you look at money and you look at people's wealth, there tends to be a... Um, uh, a response, or maybe not a verbal response, that runs through the DNA of those of us who are not wealthy. That we think those who are wealthy somehow cheated to get the money. Amen. <laughs> like, I know how they got their money. They must have cheated somebody. And so I get that. I understand that. Having been someone myself who had um, a fairly large amount of money at one point in my life uh, and had a very successful company, I get the mentality of Christians who go from not having any money to suddenly having money, how you as Christians and how we as Christians struggle with that idea too. How how much do we give away? Uh, How much do we keep? Uh, Can I really buy something that's really, really nice? Does that mean if I buy a brand new Suburban that's fully loaded? Gosh, I hope nobody in here is driving a fully loaded Suburban, but if I buy a fully loaded Suburban, is it okay for me to do that? Or does that mean I have love of money? There are um, great... 
um, difficulties for those who have money and love the Lord. It's a struggle for those, no doubt. And so Paul, being inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, wants to make sure he gives some very particular instructions to those who are wealthy. And it's summed up like this. If you're wealthy, you shouldn't be. Give all your money away. Preferably to the pastor. No, just... <laughs> It's not how the text reads. And, and, and what tends to happen in the church, e- even historically in some sense, is there is clearly a prosperity gospel. And that is that if you serve God and you love God and you follow God's commands, you then will be wealthy and healthy and things will go well for you. And unless you're a believing family who sent your son to Walmart in El Paso yesterday to get milk. Prosperity gospel out well there, does it? And then, and then on the other end of the pendulum, there is a poverty gospel. And that is, if we truly love God, if we truly care about the kingdom of God, then we will divest ourselves of any worldly possessions. And both of those ideas make it think like, or it makes us think like this, that in the way I become holy is to get rid or gain things. And that, that's not true. God is always looking at the heart's of people. And outside of the rich young ruler, even in some ways Luke 12, which I can work on Luke 12, but the rich young ruler is told to get rid of all he has and give it to the poor. But that is not because God was worried about his money. He was worried about his heart. Not to mention that if he had given it all away, nothing would have prevented him that we see in that text from going and gaining it back. He would have still been a rich young ruler, no doubt, or had the capabilities and the connections. And in Luke 12, we were just told to make sure we sell our possessions and help those who have need, which is what we find here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So Paul gives a couple of things, uh, a few instructions to these rich people. Number one, he says, listen, if you're already wealthy in this present age, don't be arrogant with your wealth. Don't be proud of it. Don't flaunt that. Don't be, in in some words, the Greek means high-minded. Don't think that because you have wealth that you are somehow better than those around you because that is not a person who is gospel-centered. Then he tells them, do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Uh, Boy, if you could take my father and I to eat. Uh, We would make you pay for it, but we would go with you. Um, We would tell you the story of my company and how fast things can go away. I don't care how successful you are right now or how much money you have. If your hope is in riches, that can vanish in the blink of an eye. So don't put your hope there. And then Paul, make sure Timothy understands, as we have learned with with Paul, don't do this, but instead do this. So don't set your hope on riches. Instead, set your hope on God. And then he tells the rich, make sure that you do good. The Greek meaning there um, means to act rightly, to do well. To take your wealth and to do well with it. And then he gives him an additional instruction that says to be rich in good works. Literally means to be abundant in good deeds. No doubt that many of you in here who are not wealthy have found yourself 
with relationships to people who were going through a difficult time in which you knew financial help would change their life a lot. But you found yourself not able to help them. Here, the text tells the rich, listen, not only should you do good, but you should be abundant in good deeds. Why? Because in many cases, you will have the capability to do so. And so make sure that you are rich in good deeds. Now, don't think this may get me in trouble with some people. Um, Maybe Lucas might throw something at me. (laughs) I do not think that if you're wealthy, that that means that all of your rich good deeds need to occur here in our local church. Although we're okay with that. (laughs) What I do think it means is that you as a believer need to be fully aware of other believers around you in all kinds of situations who have the ability to help. Clearly, God may have placed you here, and there are needs here, but there are needs all around us. So, you should be paying attention to that. And as Paul would say, you should, if you are wealthy, be generous and ready to share. Ready to share. I have purposely not worked with young children. No one laughed. Um, do we have a long list for child care helpers back in the back? Okay, so it must be a prevalent thing in our church too. But one of the things that we both learn or we all learn on a playground watching young kids is they are not interested in what? Sharing. <laughs> not much changes as we get older, is it? For those of us who have done better in life, we sometimes have an attitude of, I've done this and I've earned it. And I will get to do what I want to with my stuff. And yet Paul teaching Timothy for Timothy to teach his people wants him to understand that you should be generous and ready to share. Instead of holding your possessions like this, you should hold it like that. And saying, God, it all belongs to you. And I am ready to share. So as we said, not all of us in here are rich, I would imagine. Um, I would imagine most of, in here, most of us in here probably don't feel rich. But as I said, compared to many in the world, we are financially blessed. If you feel financial stress in your life, more than likely, it is because of our own doing. Amen? It's because we wanted things that we actually couldn't afford, but we had the ability to go get them anyway, and then later on we're like, man, I wish I would have never bought that. But by and large, if we would be people who would live disciplined lives financially, we would have the capability in America to do a lot more than just pray for people who are going through financial struggles. We could actually be generous and ready to help What's the end result of this kind of attitude for the wealthy? And I would say for all, but in particular to Paul's point here, to those who are rich. He says it in verse 19. To be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. This idea that you, being generous and being ready to share your wealth, are 
actually building up something better in the future. It is an eternal view of how you use your wealth instead of what we usually think is, and that is a very quick, temporary gratification of our wealth. In Luke 12, we heard the elder reading today. It says this, Jesus, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There's not many more anti-American dream verses in the Bible, but that one. We are taught, go get everything, and in that you will find meaning to life. And Jesus is saying that is not true. If you spend your life living to get your possessions, if, if that's where you center your life, if, if everything you think about is how do I get more and, and how, do I, how do I have more things and, and how do I position myself so I can make more and get more, you need to be well aware that the Bible teaches that is sinful. And it is possible that you could actually live your entire life life without actually having lived. Because Jesus says, your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And Paul tells Timothy to tell the wealthy that those of us who have the ability to have money and have possessions, that we should be generous. And in doing so, we will be able to take hold of what is truly life. So if life is not contained in having possessions and if taking hold of what really is life is to be generous and ready to share, then that is a major calibration for those of us who live in a country that is all about stuff. And then he shifts in verse 20. He shifts and you can hear Paul's tenderness to his young protege, his Son in the faith. Oh, Timothy. You can almost see Timothy's eyes light up when he reads this. As he hears his mentor's voice on paper. Oh, Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. This term is a banking term. Clearly, it is used three different times in the pastoral letters for the gospel. In fact, on two different occasions, here and in 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul charges Timothy to do this same thing, to guard the deposit entrusted to him. And so what is this deposit? No doubt, it is the gospel. It is the good news. The good news that Timothy has believed the good news that Timothy is now proclaiming, that is something that has been entrusted to him, and I think in some ways, and I may be going out on a small limb here, only because I didn't find any other commentators who said this, <laughs> but I think in some ways, I think Paul is also speaking to his own work with Timothy. Timothy, guard what I have entrusted, guard what's been entrusted to you. We have put a lot in you. We have trained you. We have encouraged you. We have charged you. And now I think he reminds him in the letter of this task of guarding this treasure that has been entrusted to him. 
I've tried to find a good illustration for this, and the only one I've come up with is one that's probably anti-everything I've already taught, but I'm going to use it anyway. So have you ever thought what would happen if you actually won the lottery? Most of us, this shows my weird mind, most of us are thinking about what we would buy. Here's where the old cop goes to. How do you get that ticket from here to Austin? Like, what if you went on a Saturday and they don't open till Monday? Like, you have to physically take the ticket down there. Like, are, do, do you put that, like, in a firebox? Do, do you, like, hire some guards? Or do you just put that up on your dash and drive down the road? What do you do with that ticket? But has anyone else ever thought of that? It's just me in it. So, so I'm thinking to myself, first thing I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to obviously call an attorney, call my whichever brothers I really like the most and let them know. I'm just kidding, both of my brothers, maybe my parents. Uh, I'd call my parents. And, and we would like have a meeting, and then we'd like come up with a rotation to secure that ticket. And I think we'd buy like one of those fireproof boxes. But I think if it wasn't see-through, wouldn't you like open it every five minutes to see if it's still there? Or is that just the OCD in me? You would, you would open it and make sure it's still there. And then, and then some of y'all are giving me evil looks. It's okay to talk. I'm not implying that we should go buy lottery tickets. Jeez. <laughs> and then you get the lottery ticket, and then you got to transport it, transport it from here all the way down to Austin. And aren't you terrified that, like, do you have it handcuffed to your arm, or does that give it away? Those are my kind of thoughts. How do you protect this ticket to get it into the building? Like, if, if you show up at the lottery building with something handcuffed to your arm, there's got to be bad guys who know what that is, right? And they could, like, cut your arm off. Am I getting too graphic here? How do you guard that? How do you guard that deposit? It takes that, and, and how does Timothy guard this deposit of the good news of the gospel that has been entrusted to him? How does he guard it? How does he protect it? How, how does he make sure that nothing is damaging it? Because we know that not guarding the gospel can cause you to start professing things outside the gospel, which can cause you, as we see here in this text, to swerve from your faith. To swerve from your faith. Last week I mentioned a prominent pastor who left his wife. And just a couple of days after that, he announced he was no longer a believer. It is very possible to not guard what has been trusted to you and to swerve away from faith. And there were many temptations through many false doctrines that Timothy was having to deal with in Ephesus. Doctrines and teachers who were attempting to infiltrate this church at Ephesus and so as Timothy hears from Paul from chapters 1 through a good bit of 6, reminding of what is good doctrine, what we should be doing in the church, he reminds him once again, guard it. Guard it. John Stott, theologian, outstanding theologian, in his introduction to his commentary on 2 Timothy in regarding this idea of Timothy guarding the deposit, says this. The church of our day urgently needs to heed the message of the second letter of Paul to Timothy. For all around us, we see Christians and churching, churches relaxing their grasp of the gospel, fumbling it 
in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. A new generation of young Timothys is needed who will guard the sacred deposit of the gospel, who are determined to proclaim it and are prepared to suffer for it, and who will pass it on pure and uncorrupted to the generation which in due course will rise up to follow them. We as a church, you as an individual believer, me as a pastor and elder, and our elders in this church, we need to guard the deposit entrusted to us. We have to be on guard with all the little things that can infiltrate in our church, which may sound good, but are not gospel. They may even, in some ways, in our minds, be helpful, but it's not in the Bible. And we need to guard the gospel, to be protective of the truth of God's word. And so in keeping that idea, Paul warns Timothy one more time, avoid the irreverent babble. That's in the Bible. (laughs) Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. These false teachers, as we have addressed in this letter that Timothy was dealing with, are anywhere from Jewish legalists um, to Gnostics, uh, all with their own flavor of what they think the gospel should be about. Uh, Some would argue that there was some kind of a secret special knowledge that you needed in order to understand God better. And as we have said throughout this study on Timothy, Paul has warned Timothy to guard himself from those who are teaching such things. And he reminds him again in the closing of this letter to guard the gospel from false teachers. As we learned in 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 19, and here in this passage, it's possible to shipwreck your faith by listening to the wrong teaching. I would tell you that by and large, the church needs to be a little bit more narrow on some of the things that we allow to be taught. We should be asking questions like this. Where in the Bible did you get that? Where in the Bible did you get that? I got that from here, I got that from here. No, no, no. Where in the Bible did you get that? Well, I don't know that it's actually in the Bible. Then, then, then you can follow that, but, but you can't tell me to follow that. Because I have to see it in the Bible. And we need to be careful about the things we let filtrate into the church. We must guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us. And then in closing, Paul says, grace be with you. Now, as I said, this letter is clearly written to Timothy. It is, far, it is to Timothy, but for us. But in this closing line, we have a little bit of the onion unpeeled for us. Because a better translation in, in, of that, of that you, that you is plural in the Greek. So what that really means is it should say, grace be with y'all. <laughs> Meaning that everyone else was going to hear about this as well. But don't, 
move quickly past that last phrase. After all the stuff that Paul has laid upon Timothy in these six chapters, which Timothy would have just read as a letter, you see it as chapters, he would have seen it as a letter. After all of the deep things that Paul has laid out for Timothy, and all the things that Paul has asked Timothy to tell his church, he ends it with, grace be with y'all. Good definition of grace is God's favor toward the unworthy. Some might call it unmerited favor. But God has shown believers favor. We can debate different theological ideas and we can draw up our lines and we can have our opinions. But I hope we never get over the fact that we are unworthy of God's favor. God looked upon you, believer, and said, I want that one. Unwanted people who were in rebellion toward God. You may say to me, Jason, tell me more about how God has shown us favor. I am so glad you asked. He has shown us favor by this very gospel that Paul was telling Timothy to guard. That you, unworthy, undeserving of God's love, you who, if left to your own devices, would have run as far away from God as you possibly could, you would have never come to God. And in your rebellion, to God. While you were sinning, God loved you. And His great love sent Christ to the cross that He would take your punishment that you richly deserved. And you who believe God would take your sin and you would get Christ's righteousness. What they call the great exchange. That's a great exchange. I'll give you everything that makes me unworthy. And Christ says, I will give you my righteousness. For those who come to know Christ, that is what awaits us. People would say, well, how do I come to know Christ? How do I become a believer? And boy, in East Texas, we have jacked that up. (sighs) Repeat this prayer, say this, sign this card. That is totally foreign to the Bible. It is totally foreign to the Bible. Here's what the Bible would say. Repent and believe. Repent and believe and belief. People say, well, how do we know if we didn't, if I, if I didn't repeat a certain set, set of words, and if I didn't put a date in the back of my Bible of when I did this, how do I know I'm really a believer? Because your life will never 
be the same again. Not perfect, but forever altered by the God of the universe. As Keith comes to sing, I hope that we have basked in the glory of First Timothy. So much great instruction from Paul to his young protege about how we should live our lives, how the gospel matters, how false doctrine is there and is attempting to invade all the time, and that we need to guard it, got to be careful as a church. Hey, look, we're, we're, we're going to celebrate three years as a brand new church in September. We got to guard it. Um, we had a handful of people. We got a lot more now. Uh, I think last week somebody said we had like 83 people here. Um, that may not be a big deal to you, but it was a big deal when you had 11. <laughs> Remember that, Chad and April? <laughs> it was just a handful of people. If the flu went through our church, we'd cancel service because <laughs> there was no one left to go. But we, it's no less important for us. In fact, in many ways, it's more important that we guard the gospel. That what comes from this pulpit is not my opinion, or if it is, I clearly say so, but that what comes from this pulpit is the word of God. And that's Paul's overwhelming instruction to Timothy. Guard the gospel from the false doctrines and false teachers that want to invade. And may we as a church be willing to do that. And may we live for the gospel and not for all the other things that this world thinks we should live for. Let me pray for us and then we have an opportunity to worship some and I'll come back up and give us a benediction. Lord Jesus, you have been incredibly good to us. Thank you for the favor that has been shown believers. Lord, I've been in church too long. I've forgotten what it really means to have unmerited favor poured upon me. Grace is a word that I have become too familiar with, but I have not let it completely sink into my DNA. So I pray, Lord, that for this day, for the many more to come, the people in our church, myself included, that we would never stop being amazed that grace is for us. We love you, Lord. Help us to walk lives worthy of the gospel and help our church guard it, Lord. In your name we pray.